This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. It's about time we have a discussion about metabolism that doesn't involve calories in or calories out and discussions about macronutrients. I am excited to bring to you a expert in obesity medicine, Carly Burridge. She's an internationally recognized expert in obesity medicine. She's a physician assistant and fellow of the Obesity Medicine Association. And she earned a certificate of advanced education in obesity management in 2017. She is the founder and operator of Gaining Health. Gaininghealth.com is the URL. Gaining Health is a training uh, organization for healthcare providers to help deliver obesity medicine. This is a topic that I was long overdue to have um, on my podcast. We've had several discussions about weight gain and weight metabolism and uh, obesity. However, um, this will go into the depths of understanding that it's not necessarily a behavioral disorder or behavioral imbalance, but um, looking at the medical aspect of obesity and how it develops. So in this episode, we're going to do a deep dive into obesity medicine. I think you'll really enjoy our discussions of hormones such as leptin, insulin, GLP-1, ghrelin. We also talk about insulin resistance, leptin resistance, medications for obesity, some of the broad underlying root causes of obesity and what people can do and think about to help manage obesity necessarily getting out of the diet mindset and looking at this from a a long-term perspective so without further ado i welcome you to the next episode of the one thing podcast with my guest carly burridge Hello, I'm Dr. Rindy, and welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. I'm delighted to have Carly Burridge in today here as a guest on um, the One Thing Podcast. We're going to speak speaking about obesity medicine. Welcome to the 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 show. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You're welcome. Yeah, it's uh, I know we got a chance to get to know each other the last couple of weeks, and um, I this topic has so much depth to it that um i thought we'd you know see as see how much we could get through today um there's a lot to talk about but uh i'd like to take a f- uh, few moments here just to get to know you a little bit more and introduce you to the people who listen to this show um since we're talking about obesity medicine um i was curious you know what in your career path, um, when was it that you decided that that was going to be the path that you were going to take? Yeah, I think if I would have known about obesity medicine earlier, I would have gotten here a lot sooner than I did. 
But, you know, I think I guess it would start out with my undergraduate degree. So for my undergraduate, I got a degree in psychology and a degree in physiology because I just really believe in that mind body connection and the interplay between mental health and physical health. And so with especially with my physiology degree, you know, a lot of my classmates were going to medical school and going into medicine. And I just really just didn't want to go down that traditional medical school route. You know, what I was seeing in kind of this Western style medicine of just, you know, prescribing more and more medications just didn't fit with what I wanted to do. And I was an athlete myself, and I just noticed more and more that exercise was something that benefited people both mentally and physically, and what an impact it had on on so many different medical conditions that I decided for grad school to go to clinical exercise, to study clinical exercise physiology at UT Austin. So it was fascinating. I loved it. I love getting in the nitty gritty of the physiology and understanding how all of these things worked. And the more we looked at the research and how exercise is helping people with all kinds of medical conditions, including cancer and diabetes and obesity and and depression and all of these things, I just realized I really wanted to work with the clinical population. So that's when I decided to go the medical route and go to PA school with the hopes of doing that and kind of practicing medicine the way I wanted to practice it and the way I envisioned it. But then, you know, so I took a job in primary care after after school, after I graduated, and it was uh, was a combination of primary care and also one of the doctors I worked with um, was board certified in integrative medicine. And we had a life coach and things like that. So when we had patients who had chronic diseases that required lifestyle change, we would send them to her. But I just wasn't seeing a lot of change in my patients. And I was seeing, you know, 25, 30 patients a day. And I just really wasn't able to do the things that I had wanted to do coming out of school. And uh, so I got a little bit frustrated with that. And then we moved to Texas two years or a couple years later. And I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. The nice thing about being a PA is that you can go in all these different directions but I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so I just ended up going door to door to different medical practices with my resume. And I just kind of walked into a bariatric surgery office. And the dietitian there, who was also the office manager slash the surgeon's wife and everything, um, she met me and as soon as she saw my resume, she pulled the surgeon aside and she said, you know, look, here's Carly, this is her background, you know, with the psychology, the exercise physiology and the interest in lifestyle. So they brought me on uh, in the bariatric surgery practice to really do a lot of the counseling for the patients before and after surgery. And I was in the OR too as the first assist. And it was great. And I could really see the transformation happening for people. My only frustration was the people that didn't qualify for surgery, didn't want surgery, uh, where their insurance didn't cover it, or the people who had already had surgery and were experiencing weight regain. I felt like there was something more that I should be able to do for those people. And so that's when I found out about obesity medicine through somebody else, through a nurse practitioner who was also doing a similar role. And that's how I got introduced to the field of obesity medicine and it's history ever since. (laughs) So um, the, uh, that, that path was there a mentor or a book or something that, you know, really sunk in for you that, that really shaped 
how you ended up developing Gaining Health? Yeah, there were, I mean, there were so many people, so many books, so many resources. If I had to think of one book that made a big difference in the trajectory of my life, it would be the book Prescription for a Healthy Nation by Tom Farley. So we had to read that for one of our clinical exercise physiology classes in grad school. And it was there that he said that the majority of Americans see a primary care provider at some point during the year. And so in his mind, that was really where a lot of this lifestyle education and, and this management of chronic diseases needed to happen. So that was really when I decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and become a PA and go the medical route. So that book really shifted the direction I was going in. And then as far as mentors and people, again, there are so many people, I wish I could name them all, but one person really sticks out in particular and that's Sam Christensen. She was, when I went to my first Obesity Medicine Association conference to really learn about the field of obesity medicine, she was my mentor. So they have a great mentorship program. So if you're new to obesity medicine or it's your first conference, they match you with a mentor, a more experienced provider. And Sam has been doing obesity medicine for a really long time and has been very involved with the Obesity Medicine Association. So she kind of took me under her wing and she encouraged me to get involved with committees and leadership positions at OMA. And so that's really where I started doing a lot of the presenting and educating. And it's just really helped me grow as a leader. And she's always continued to encourage me to do things that I thought maybe were outside of my comfort zone or maybe I wasn't quite ready for. And she just encouraged me and said, you have great things to share. So same thing when I started gaining health, you know, when you're starting your own business, when you're starting your own venture, it's always it's scary. And so she's just been encouragement uh, all along the way. And it's now been many, many years. And I still talk to her on a weekly basis. I just talked to her this morning. So she's definitely been a great inspiration. That's wonderful. It's, you know, it's amazing. Like, you never know, like the first time you meet someone, how how they're going to end up shaping your life. So I always, I always think about that when whenever I'm meeting someone, it's like, it's, it could not just be like, just for today, it could be for, you know, for life. So um, it's, uh, that was, that was really great to hear that story. Um, so obesity, in a lot of circles is just sort of thought of as like, maybe a symptom or as a result of like habits or, you know, it, it's sort of been kind of put into this, this box of um, like a, a symptom of something else. And you've really taken um, kind of an approach that it's, it's a, it's a field of medicine. It's like a, a specific condition. Um, can you kind of walk us through how that evolved and just kind of the definitions of obesity um, from a standpoint of, of obesity medicine? Yeah. So, you know, we've learned so much about the disease of obesity, especially in the last 20 years. And so it, we know that with most things, when we learn something new, it takes about 20 to 30 years for the medical field to kind of catch up with the science. And so, you know, I just think it's so important that we get the science out there because we know so much more about it. And I think there's really three things that makes obesity a disease in and of itself and not just a risk factor for other conditions. And I think the first thing we need to we need to realize is when we call something a disease, we're saying that there's a dysregulation somewhere, a dysfunction. 
So when we talk about obesity, it's really the dysfunction of the energy regulatory system. So what I mean by that is our, our energy regulatory system is highly regulated. So your body, your brain knows how much body fat you have, right? You get all of these feedbacks. Your, your appetite regulatory system is highly regulated. And so your brain and your hypothalamus, it knows how much fat you have based on, for instance, the leptin that's released from your adipocytes, from your fat cells. So that's one of the signals that sends a message to your brain that tells your brain how much fat you have stored. And then there's all of these other signals that we receive from other parts of the body that tells your brain about appetite. So when we eat things or when we don't eat, you know, we have our primary hunger hormone, ghrelin, that's produced in the stomach. And when that's elevated, that tells us that we're hungry and that we should eat. And then we have all of these satiety hormones that get released um, from the liver, from the pancreas, from the intestines. So, you know, we're talking about hormones like insulin, GLP-1, PYY, oxyntomodulin. So all of these hormones get released when we eat certain foods and they tell the brain when we've had enough to eat. And same thing, leptin will tell the brain when you have enough fat stores and it will turn off that appetite signal in your brain. So what happens when somebody develops obesity is these systems start to fall apart. So we already know insulin resistance is something that we hear a lot about, right? So your body develops a resistance to the insulin signal. It no longer listens to that insulin signal. So then your body needs more and more and more insulin for your blood glucose to be regulated. And so then you eventually develop hyperinsulinemia, which can in and of itself drive obesity. Another thing that happens is people can develop leptin resistance. So leptin, that that hormone that gets released from your fat cells that that tells your brain that you have enough fat stores, your brain doesn't get that message anymore. So you don't get those satiety signals. So your brain still thinks that you should keep eating, that you're still hungry. So that whole system of communication between the brain and the rest of your body about appetite and about energy regulation, it starts to break down. And then we no longer get the correct signals about when to eat and when to stop eating. So I think that's one of the things that we have to recognize is obesity is a dysregulation of the energy regulatory system. Yeah, so it's, is it fair to say that how people got there to that point where, you know, we're talking about they, they have a, actually a disease of obesity um, is heterogeneous, meaning like um, it's not like just the classic, well, this person was just like sitting on the couch eating chips and drinking Coke and not exercising. And then all of a sudden this happened. Is there all a lot of different pathways to this uh, this metabolic imbalance? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's lots of different ways. When you look at the causes of obesity, there's so many. And it's interesting, oftentimes more, it's it's the obesity that triggers the behavior. So people think that, you know, people eat too much and they don't exercise enough. And that's why they gain weight and they develop obesity. But actually the increased eating and the fatigue is as a result of of these signals that have gone awry. So there's so many different things that can lead to obesity. Uh, I mean, first of all, we know that genetics plays a big role. And the way we want to think about genetics is that genetics loads the gun and then your environment pulls the trigger. 
So there's oh, there's hundreds of genes that are associated with obesity. And the more of those genes a person has, the higher the likelihood that they will develop obesity in an obesogenic environment. Now, we all live in a very obesogenic environment. So those people that have more of those genes, they're more likely for those genes to get activated by the environment for them to develop obesity. There's also about 15% of the population that's just simply don't have those genes. And we all love to hate those people, right? Those people that seem to be able to eat whatever they want and not exercise and they never gain any weight, right? So they just really just don't have the genetics to gain weight. But the more of those genes you have, the more likely it is that you can develop obesity in the right environment. So certainly our nutrition and our activity levels can affect that, but stress levels can affect that. You know, we know that cortisol, our stress hormone, uh, causes weight gain. We know that lack of sleep causes that. When we don't sleep enough, we get an increase in those hunger hormones and a decrease in those satiety hormones. We know that medications, a lot of people are on medications that cause weight gain as a side effect of those medications. Again, they mess with that whole energy regulatory system and can cause people to gain weight. We know that the microbiome plays a big role. We know that there are endocrine disrupting factors that are everywhere all around us, right? In our shampoos, in our cleaning products, in the foods we eat, that can be obesogenic. And there's even viruses like adenovirus 36 that can trigger weight gain. So there are so many different factors that can contribute to this dysregulation of the energy regulatory system, where for some people it just drives their appetite up and it causes fatigue. And those hormones are all interconnected. You know, orexin, that's the hormone that we think about when we talk about activity and stuff like that. Well, that's affected by blood glucose levels and things like that too. Um, so everything's all connected. It's, it's so complicated. There's so much to it, but um, one thing is for sure that it's much more complicated than just calories in, calories out, or you know, eat less and move more. Yeah, I'm really glad you you have are pointing that out because I think so many people um, who struggle with weight or struggle with obesity, you know, they're they're kind of um, expected to follow a certain formula, you know, that um, maybe has worked for lean subjects or lean people mm -hmm. and. And, um, you know, the frustration and it becomes, you know, also the psychological distress that kicks in once um, obesity has developed. Um, so it's, it's very complex. And I'm so thrilled that there's a specialty now because, you know, it, 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 there's such, there was such a void. I mean, I think we've had bariatric surgery for some time, but like a unique specialty that understands the biochemistry of the, the overeating and the biochemistry of the fat dysregulation and genetics. I mean, it, it's just, it's about time, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know? it is. And, you know, patients have been unfairly blamed for this for so many years. And, and then there's also the idea that prevention is the same as the treatment, right? So we know that, you know, eating healthy food and staying active and getting enough sleep, that, that can be very helpful to prevent developing obesity. But once somebody has developed obesity, that's totally different. It's like you can put on sunscreen to prevent skin cancer, but once you have melanoma, the answer is not just to put on more sunscreen, right? We have to treat the disease. And so once somebody has the disease of obesity, the treatment has to be 
more than just what we use for prevention, just, you know, try to eat well and exercise because we know that that doesn't work for most people. And one of the other things that makes obesity is a, a disease is what happens when we lose weight because our bodies are designed to protect us from weight loss. This was very important uh, for our forebears, for our hunter-gatherer forebears, right? That we didn't lose too much weight because starvation could kill us, right? That was one of the, the main things that could take us out. So your brain is designed to protect you from weight loss. So when we do start to lose weight, your body has this set point for what it thinks your weight should be, right? Regardless of what it is, whatever your weight is right now and what it's been for a little bit, that's what your body sees as your set point for your weight. So then when you start to lose weight, your brain starts to freak out. Again, it gets all these hormonal signals. Your leptin levels, as you're losing body fat, your leptin levels start to drop. And that's a very powerful signal for your brain to say, whoa, 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 what's going on here? We have to make sure that we regain that weight. So what happens is you start to get an increase in your hunger hormones. So an increase in ghrelin, your primary hunger hormone, and a decrease in those other satiety hormones. So the result is increased hunger. So you're losing weight and now you're even hungrier than you were before. And those hormonal changes persist for over a year. Even if somebody regains weight, those hormone levels are still elevated. And a second thing that happens, in addition to your hunger hormones being increased, the other thing that happens is your metabolism slows down. Again, your hypothalamus controls that energy regulatory system, and that includes your metabolism. So we start to see that your metabolism slows down so that you don't burn as many calories every day at rest for your body to encourage you to get back to that set point to regain weight. And on average, metabolism will slow down about 15% below what would be expected from just the weight loss alone. And we've seen a lot of this from studies like the Biggest Loser study, uh, where they followed the contestants out for six years. And they saw that those people that had that biggest metabolic adaptation, for some people, is up to 800 calories a day that they burned less than what they should be burning um, just because of the weight loss. So that's another thing that drives weight regain. So we're really fighting our own biology here when we're trying to lose weight and keep it off. And that's why so many people, they might be able to lose weight, but then they regain it. And rather than understanding the biology behind that and being able to overcome some of that biology, people tend to blame themselves. They think, well, I, I must not be trying hard enough or other people blame them. Well, you, you know, you must be eating more than you think you are. Or, you know, if you were just a little bit more active or, you know, all, you hear all of these things and it just comes down to blaming the individual when really there's a lot that's going on biologically. Yeah, such yeah. a good point the um you know the the weight cycling um and you know sort of the success followed by regain is you know kind of like a really common scenario and you know i think um luckily we're getting to a point where the word diet is starting to um fade in the background um and you know we're, we're starting to kind of focus on things like nutrition and hormones and regulation and um you know looking at certain biomarkers and various ways to kind of actually help the body and help the system rather than just kind of restrict and then let go right um so let's talk about some of these biomarkers you've you've mentioned a few of them and it's almost you know hard to figure out where to 
where to start, but like, I think, you know, the most common ones are like insulin and, um, you know, but some of the least common as far as people um, understanding is probably leptin and orexin um, and glip one. So you've pointed out different regions of the body, which is very interesting. So you've got some, some of the, the obesogenic targets or uh, biochemical markers are located in the brain. Others are in the gut. Some are in the pancreas, you know, where, like, where would you start in an, in this discussion? Like, would you start with basic kind of once, if the basics are covered, do you go into some of these other realms? Um, like, for example, like if someone has insulin issues right off the bat, do you start there um, with the discussion or take me through kind of that kind of flow? Yeah, I think insulin is one of the biggest things that we need to address because the insulin hormone controls uh, your your fat utilization. It mm -hmm. controls lipolysis so and lipogenesis. So if your insulin levels are high, you're going to be in fat storage mode, right? You're going to be in lipogenesis mode. If your insulin levels are low enough, then only then can you actually burn fat. Can you be in lipolysis? And I remember this was one of the most important things that really changed actually my own lifestyle as well. And this was also when I was in graduate school at the at UT for clinical exercise physiology. We just we were talking about substrate utilization. So what does your body use for fuel? Basically, it has two choices, right? Glucose or fat. And so it showed a graph of you know lipolysis or, or fat burning on, on one axis and insulin levels on the other axis. And it just showed so clearly that as insulin levels go up, lipolysis or fat burning goes down. And at that time in my life, I had gained about 30 pounds or so in college. And even though I was an athlete and I was very active, you know, your diet's not the best in college. And I was just really frustrated because I had been trying to lose that weight for about three years. I gained most of it my freshman year and spent the next three years, four years trying to lose it. And it seemed like no matter what I did, I could not lose the weight. And of course, I mean, we were all raised with this, you know, low fat mentality and, you know, avoid fat. So everything I had tried was kind of a low fat approach. And, and I'd even trained for a marathon. I was like, I could not possibly be more active. And it seemed like no matter what I tried, um, I couldn't lose the weight. So when I saw that graph, something just clicked in my brain and I thought, oh my gosh, maybe I've been, you know, targeting the wrong thing. What if I just try cutting back on the foods that cause my insulin to go up. So all of the rice cakes I was eating, granola bars, the low fat oatmeal, you know, all of the things that I thought I was doing to help myself lose weight. I just cut out all of those grains and sugars and all of those foods. And, and I, I didn't necessarily add a lot of fat. I was just not necessarily avoiding it, not eating low fat products and stuff like that anymore. And for me, I mean, it made an immediate difference. And what I really noticed was my hunger levels were much better. And that makes so much sense because the way that our body is designed is that in between our meals and an overnight fast and stuff like that, we're supposed to be able to tap into our own fat as a fuel source. And if you have insulin resistance and you have chronically high insulin levels, if you develop hyperinsulinemia, then your insulin levels are always high. Now, how can you possibly access your own fat as a fuel source if you're 
insulin is always high. So not only will you not be able to lose weight, you'll also be hungry all the time because your body is only able to use glucose as a fuel source. And so you get hungry every few hours. And that totally described me. I had to eat every two to three hours or I became a hangry mess and you did not want to be around me. Um, so I was just so hungry all the time and I couldn't figure it out. And that really changed everything for me. So that's one of the first things that I talk about with patients is I check their insulin levels and it's almost always high. Uh, we, you know, we calculate their HOMA insulin resistance score. And a lot of them are surprised to find out because they may have been told by their other providers, you know, your blood sugar is good, or maybe they had prediabetes and nobody ever even told them about that. And so when you can start to explain to a patient the role that insulin has, it makes a huge difference, especially when they can see it in their own lab. So that's the first thing I focus on is what can we do to lower those insulin levels? Okay. And so, you know, the, the, um, the interesting thing with you is, you know, in a lot of circles, you know, people are familiar with, you know, glucose measurements and um, post-meal glucose response and wearing um, glucose monitors to try to get this insulin glucose system right. The great thing that, you know, learning from you is it just doesn't stop there. I mean, you, you go deeper than that because that, that often gets people started, but to actually really sustain and turn things around, there's other things going on, right? So like you mentioned orexin, which I find fascinating because mm -hmm. the fact that it is involved with controlling our desire to move. Um, can you talk about that? Because that was just mind blowing because I know so many people who are struggling with weight issues and it's like, I just don't have the energy to exercise. I want, you know, I know I should, but I just feel tired, exhausted. I don't feel like moving. Um, I'm yeah. interested to hear about orexin and how that plays into this whole scenario of this vicious cycle. Yeah, orexin is a really interesting hormone that you actually don't hear very much about in obesity medicine. So I have spoken about orexin at a couple of the presentations that I have given on physical activity because, you know, that's most people don't realize obesity medicine specialists realize that hormones play a role in appetite. But what many of them don't realize is that hormones also play a big role in our activity levels. And so and orexin is one of the, the major hormones that helps control this. And so we know that orexin levels can vary between individuals, first and foremost, we have to recognize that. And I think you, you can even see it in people, you know, people, I know people between my own kids, I know my daughter cannot sit still, she is a fidgeter. So she probably, in my mind, I'm thinking she probably has pretty high orexin levels, whereas my son is much more like he likes to sit on the couch and I really have to like try hard to get him moving. So I think naturally, first of all, people just have varying um, levels of, of natural orexin that they have. We also know that orexin does tend to go down with age. So that's why we also see that, you know, sometimes some of our, our older patients and as we age, people tend to be more sedentary because their orexin levels are simply going down with age. But another thing that affects orexin is glucose levels and leptin levels and all of these hormones and, uh, and stuff that we talk about in obesity that are elevated in people with obesity actually suppress orexin. So not only do they struggle with the hormones that make them more hungry, but they also have low levels of the hormone that makes you want to be active. 
So that's why when I'm when I'm talking with patients, especially if I have somebody who really, you know, when I talk to them about physical activity, they just say they're just so fatigued all the time. They just don't have the energy to be active. I say, well, then let's not start there. Let's work on your nutrition because as your glucose levels go down and your insulin levels go down um, and you're starting to lose some of this weight and inflammation, your orexin levels may start to go up. And a lot of times you do see that when people start to change their nutrition and start to lose some weight, all of a sudden they'll notice an increase in energy levels. And we see this too, you know, a lot of times when people start a low carbohydrate or a ketogenic plan, you know, the first month or so, obviously they're going through that fat adaptation, that keto adaptation. But then after that, once they kind of get through that phase, all of a sudden they notice they have a lot more energy. And, you know, I think that has to do with the, an elevation in these orexin levels as well. So I always like to start with the nutrition and make sure we're working on that part and, and stress management and sleep. And then we kind of start to go into physical activity as their energy levels uh, or orexin levels start to improve. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And I think it's also empowering for people to know that it's you know, that there is a hormone involved and it's not just laziness and mm -hmm. it's not just that they don't have enough willpower or drive or desire, you know, all those things that we kind of learn from sports and, and other kind of modeling that it's, you know, it's all about you pushing yourself, which I think in some sense, you know, you have to be motivated to get well, but um, if you have like a big boulder that you're holding up, um, it's harder. Um, the, uh, the orexin also, I've, I've learned previously the first time i heard about it was with narcolepsy mm -hmm. um i think there's like a there's some of the pathophysiology of narcolepsy involves orexin so yeah it involves it's involved with sleep appetite and then physical activity level so it does a lot of different things um and they're not as far as i know that they're they're not really looking at any treatments for obesity with orexin but they are looking at you know treatment for narcolepsy and stuff like that but I think it's one of those hormones to keep our eye on because I wouldn't be surprised if down the line, you know, they start to look at that more as an intervention potentially for obesity as well. Yeah. I, I don't know if we have time to get into this or if it's appropriate, but I think there's something called HIF one that it's connected to, which is like a, you know, sort of a pathway that um, is affected by sleep. And so mm -hmm. that's interesting that, uh, you know, improving sleep um, may improve orexin levels. Yeah, oh. absolutely. And I think sleep is one of those key factors too that a lot of times gets overlooked. You know, sometimes I might see a patient and they're just so frustrated because they feel like from a nutrition standpoint, they're doing everything that they're doing everything right and they're physically active and they just don't understand why they're not losing any weight. And then you ask them about their sleep and you know, especially like night shift workers or people that are only getting like four hours of sleep a night, and I'm like, you're not, you're just, you're not going to be able to really lose that weight, you know, unless we, unless you start getting some good sleep. So that can sometimes be a really tough one, especially for people that have to work night shifts and have families and they have responsibilities during the day. But I think just like you said, recognizing that it's not just them, that it's not that they're doing something wrong, that there really is a biology behind this. Um, I think when it comes to obesity, there's so much internalized weight bias and stigma that leads to so much shame for people. And that oftentimes, you know, it ends up standing in the way of them seeking help. 
it stands in the way of them actually doing, we know studies have shown that people who have that internalized weight bias and who feel that way, they actually end up having more binge eating. They have a more difficult time sticking with exercise programs. They have a higher attrition rate in weight loss programs because just that, that bias and the shame that they feel just really stands in the way of them being able to be successful. So that's why I always start out every time with the patient before I even talk to them about their personal weight history or any of that, I teach them a class on, a class on the pathophysiology of obesity because I want them to understand that this is not their fault and that there is hope and that there's help. Um, so I think that's so important. Yeah. So in clinical practice, I think the concept of leptin resistance is more common than we think um, because a lot of people will come back with like normal glucose levels, normal insulin levels, their thyroid looks fine. Um, you know, potentially uh, they're, they've tried a lot of nutritional changes and exercise and, and then, um, you know, we think about this leptin problem a lot in these, in this population, this is, it's such mental trickery to figure out how this, this uh, develops leptin resistance. Maybe you can help clarify like how it develops. What's uh, you talked about it earlier about how, you know, it's sort of signaling your brain that um, to eat more um, mm -hmm. or to, to, kind of consume food. Um, can you talk us through leptin resistance, how people get there maybe, and then, you know, just uh, kind of what's involved with it? Sure. Yeah. So to go back on the history of leptin a little bit, leptin is interesting because it was the first hormone that was discovered in the appetite regulatory system. And it wasn't discovered until 1995. So fairly recently, um, that's when they discovered leptin and that leptin is released by your adipocytes and tells your brain about your appetite. And this is the first time they realized this in 1995. Before that, they just thought that your adipose tissue was basically just, you know, a sack of calories for a rainy day, right? They didn't realize that your adipocytes are such an active organ really, and that it's one of the most active endocrine organs that we have. It releases hundreds of substances all the time. And that's another thing, this is a whole other sub subject, but another thing that makes obesity a disease is that those adipocytes um, become dysfunctional. So we can talk, we can circle back to that if you'd like later. But to get back to the leptin, so leptin is released by your fat cells and it tells your brain that you've had enough to eat and it turns off your hunger signals and increases your satiety signals. So what causes leptin resistance? I don't think we fully understand exactly what causes leptin resistance, just like we're still kind of figuring out what exactly causes insulin resistance, right? Um, so you, one theory is just that, you know, the more fat cells you have, the more adipocytes you have, the more leptin is going to be produced. And just kind of like with with anything else, when your body gets exposed to something over and over and over and over again at high levels, your brain just develops a resistance to it. It stops listening to it. So that's one thing that might be going on with leptin resistance is that your brain just does stops listening to the leptin signal, right? So that's how it kind of develops a resistance to that. And then when that happens, again, your brain is not getting that signal of, okay, we have enough fat stores, we can turn down the appetite, right? Um, so when your brain doesn't get that signal to turn down the appetite signals, you're just constantly hungry. And so we see that in a lot of patients with obesity. Now, what I'll also say is obesity is not one disease. It's 
hundreds of diseases, right? There's lots of different types of obesity and different causes for obesity. So some people with obesity may have leptin resistance, whereas others don't. Some people with obesity might have um, abnormalities of other hormones. So for instance, they've done studies and they found that some people with obesity, their ghrelin levels, so ghrelin is your hunger hormone. And after we eat, our ghrelin levels are supposed to go down, right? They're supposed to dip and that tells your brain we're not hungry anymore. Well, in some people, it's not necessarily that they have elevated ghrelin levels, it's that their ghrelin level doesn't go down after they eat. So you have some people who say, you know, I know I've had a full meal, but I'm still hungry or they're hungry again, like an hour later. Um, another hormone that was is studied quite well is GLP-1. So GLP-1 is released in the small intestines when we eat. And again, it's supposed to send that signal to your brain that you've had enough to eat. But when you start asking people about their appetite and about the symptoms of their appetite, you can really start to figure out which part of the body might not be working because some people might say, um, I never feel full, right? So they're always hungry. They never feel full. Their ghrelin levels must not be dropping or, you know, maybe their, their GLP-1 is not going up after a meal. For other people, it's they say, I get full, but then two hours later, I'm hungry. And that can be a sign of, of you know, having low GLP-1 levels as well. And for other people, they say, no, it's not really that I'm hungry. I don't really struggle with hunger, but they have severe cravings or emotional eating. So you're going to treat that differently. And then for other people, it might be that they have a slow resting metabolic rate or, you know, something else. So again, for different people, there can be so many different causes of, uh, of their appetite being dysregulated or their adiposity being dysregulated. So that's why it's so complex because there's so many hormones involved. Um, that's what makes it so interesting. And that's why it's so important that we individualize treatment and you can't just treat everybody the same way because they might be struggling with something totally different. Yeah, I love I love how you point that out. And I can almost see what it's like to experience you as a clinician, how you're kind of listening for the, the kind of the the deeper understory to, to, to guide you. And, you know, sometimes, you know, like over the years, when enough clinicians are doing this, there's like good questionnaires that are developed and, and other ways to kind of understand where to start. Um, I don't know if that's something that you've been involved with or if that's on the on the horizon um, but I found that correct questionnaires um, if you know if done right they can they can really help this conversation absolutely I think obesity medicine is all about asking the right questions and so that's one of the things that I did with my company gaining health is I developed these forms and templates that providers can use with their patients so that to make sure that they're asking the right questions and asking it in the right way. And I think if you ask the right questions in the right way, it really takes the shame away from the patient. You're asking them about biologic symptoms. And, you know, so then they don't necessarily have to feel shame about their overeating or their binge or their cravings because they realize you're just trying to figure out these hormones and that that's what's driving a lot of these behaviors. It's the hormones that drive the behaviors, not the other way around. And so it's just a totally different approach. So that's something that I've done with my company, Gaining Health, is develop these forms and these templates. And then I've also, you know, written a book for healthcare providers on, on developing an obesity management program that kind of goes through, you know, what types of things do you want to talk about with a patient? What kind of labs do you want to order? You know, how do you structure this in your medical practice? 
because I think it's it's really important that we try to get this this obesity medicine mainstream. I feel like every primary care provider should be offering this to their patients. It should be available to anyone. And unfortunately, that's just not the case right now. It's it's still very few and far between as far as obesity medicine providers. But that's ultimately my goal is to have it everywhere. Yes. Yeah. Well, you've done an amazing job also of being involved with pioneering treatments and interventions, you know, beyond nutrition, um, lifestyle and sleep and um, exercise interventions. Can you just give us sort of like a tour de force of some of the things that are out there now that people can maybe um, learn, learn about and maybe we'll do another chat at some point about some of the therapies that you're involved with um, that interface with uh, some of these aspects like LIP1 and leptin or, you know, orexin, or maybe we're not there yet, but I'd just love to hear kind of your overview of the state of therapies because a number of my patients have actually started, um, you know, certain therapies to help them with um, their weight and report, you know, that um, there's been some significant progress. Yeah. So the good thing is now is that we have, we have evidence-based treatments to help people with these different things that they're struggling with. So the first thing I always like to start with, like I said, is nutrition. Because sometimes if the person's problem is really mostly you know, insulin resistance based and controlling their hunger by controlling their insulin levels, then that's where I like to start, right? So there's, and then also with the metabolic adaptation, you know, you can talk about resistance training to help counteract that. And we know that low carbon ketogenic diets can help with some of those appetite hormones to regulate those. So I kind of like to start there and see how, how far we can get with those nutrition changes alone. For some people, like they, that's all they need in the lifestyle stuff. That's, that's kind of what they need. But for other people, that's not sufficient, right? They still, they, or they can't even follow the nutrition plan because they struggle with hunger or cravings or whatever else they're struggling with. So that's when we can really turn to pharmacotherapy to help the patients be able to regulate that appetite system in their brain that's dysfunctional, right? So these medications work on those parts of the brain that help control appetite to kind of lessen their hunger, lessen that drive to eat, lessen the cravings. And so then it's much easier for a patient to be able to stick to a nutrition plan if they're not hungry all the time, right? Um, and then also when we know when people lose weight, there's that increase in appetite hormones and the decrease in satiety hormones. So the medications also help with that. So they're not just for the weight loss phase, they're actually really important for the weight maintenance phase as well. So we need to be thinking about this as chronic treatment, just like we do if we were treating somebody for hypertension or diabetes, we don't treat them for a few months, right? We treat them chronically because this is a chronic condition. And then, you know, there's also surgery, of course. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions around bariatric surgery, which I also had when I first learned about bariatric surgery. I thought it was just, well, yeah, you're making somebody's stomach smaller or you're bypassing a part of the intestine. So yeah, of course they're going to lose weight. They can't eat as much. But it's really the hormonal effects that those surgeries have uh, in, in regulating the, the hormones that trigger appetite. That's really where the big change is happening. So for the first year, year and a half after surgery, people just aren't hungry because, again, it's affecting those appetite regulating hormones. Now, as the years go by after surgery, those effects do start to wear off. So we do see some people that start to regain again after surgery. And that's when, you know, you need to intensify treatment again 
with perhaps nutrition changes. And if that's not enough, then, you know, we got to look at pharmacotherapy and really look at all of the tools that we have available and use them when necessary. So what are some of the categories of medications that are, are FDA approved now and available? Yeah, so there was a, a new one that was just recently released, uh, Semaglutide 2.4 or Wegovi. And so that one and one called Saxenda, which is Liraglutide 3.0 milligrams. So those are both GLP-1 agonists. So GLP-1, as we've talked about before, is that hormone that gets released in the gut and it plays several roles. It also plays a role in blood glucose regulation. So a lot of people might be familiar with GLP-1s when it comes to treating diabetes. So for instance, you know, there's semaglutide one milligram dose, that's ozempic, that's for treating um, diabetes. And then there's Trulicity and there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of other, and, and um, there's also liraglutide 1.2 or 1.8 milligrams or Victoza for the treatment of diabetes. So we know that GLP-1 also plays an important role in blood glucose regulation, but it also has a role in appetite regulation. And especially we have to get to those higher doses of GLP-1 for it to actually cross the blood brain barrier to have an effect on appetite. That's why you'll see that the dosing for obesity treatment is higher than the dosing for diabetes. And that is because we need that higher dose to cross the brain, to get into the hypothalamus, into that appetite regulatory system. Um, another thing that GLP-1s do is they slow down gastric emptying. So for some patients, their stomach contents just empty really quickly. So when I hear those patients that say, yeah, no, I get full, but then I'm hungry again an hour or two hours later, I'm thinking they would probably really benefit from a GLP-1 because it's going to slow that gastric emptying so their food stays in their stomach longer, keeping them full longer. And then in addition to that, again, it, it affects the hypothalamus. So GLP-1s is our one class of medication that um, are definitely very effective. I think the problem with them is insurance coverage. If insurance doesn't cover these medications, they're very expensive. So it's so important that we also advocate for better insurance coverage for these medications. And unfortunately, right now, this is something that employers have to opt into. And if they don't, then anti-obesity medications are not covered. So that's something we really have to work on. Um, and then there's other medications too. There's those sympathomimetics like fentramine, fendimetrazine, diethylpropion. Those have been around for a really long time, since the 1950s. And those also work on the hypothalamus in that energy regulatory system and increase satiety. So people just aren't as hungry. Um, and those medications were approved for short-term use because again, in the 1950s, we didn't know about obesity as a disease. We didn't know about all these hormones. They thought, so they thought, well, people just need a kickstart to change their lifestyle, to create a new habit, because that's what they thought was all about. And then they won't need it anymore. Well, now we know that that's not how it works. So um, again, it depends on your state and your state laws, because state laws vary in whether you can prescribe fentramine long-term or not. Um, but for most people, if you're going to use fentramine and it's not against uh, your state laws and, uh, and you feel comfortable with it, I would recommend using it long-term, not short-term. And then there is a medication, fentramine topiramate. So it's a combination of fentramine and topiramate. So topiramate is another medication that works in that in the hypothalamus that also helps increase satiety. So fentramine really decreases the hunger and the topiramate really increases the satiety. So they work together and that's called Qsemia. And that is approved for long-term use. 
Um, and then there's Contrave. So Contrave is a combination of bupropion and naltrexone. So a lot of people are familiar with bupropion. Um, it's also used as an antidepressant and it works on that dopamine cent part of the brain. So the reward center of the brain, that mesolimbic part of the brain, that's where cravings and emotional eating lives. So um, the bupropion works on the dopamine and the naltrexone works on the opioid receptors. So when we eat foods, especially foods high in sugar and carbs and fats, you know, those processed foods, we get a dopamine and an opioid release in that reward center of the brain. So that particular medication really helps mostly with that reward center of the brain. So when I have a patient who really struggles with emotional eating or cravings, I'm thinking more along the lines of bupropion naltrexone. So, you know, those are those are just some of the examples of the medications that we have available. And the good news is, is there's a lot more coming down the pipeline. So it's exciting for people who struggle with this disease who need additional help beyond the lifestyle changes. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think... Um, sometimes what I've learned as a naturopathic physician and someone who tries to be integrative is that um, the combination of, you know, sometimes by implementing a therapy like a GLP-1 um, treatment um, will allow for the ability to make core changes, you know, mm -hmm. whereas if you can't ever get to the core changes because you're just feeling lousy and not making any progress, um, you know, we kind of aren't really helping someone. So I always look for other ways to help people get to have the ability to make core changes. Um, so that that's really helpful. That was great to learn. Um, I think what I'd like to do is kind of uh, close our discussion by learning about gaining health a little bit more um, and what you're up to and just some kind of party wor parting words of wisdom for us and just letting us know how people can follow you. I will be putting links to your um, contact information in the show notes, but it, um, anything that you would like to share and then we could wrap up from there. Yeah, I would just, you know, I'm so passionate about healthcare providers and patients, everybody learning about obesity as a disease, because I think, you know, understanding the pathophysiology is the first step to overcoming a lot of the weight bias and stigma that we see. So, um, you know, for providers, you know, get educated. The Obesity Medicine Association is a really awesome organization to get your education through. And then if you if you've had some of that education and you feel like you want to start incorporating obesity medicine into your clinical practice, you know, that's really why I created Gaining Health is to facilitate that process and just to make it so much easier for you to do that so that you don't have to recreate the wheel and figure everything out on your own. I can kind of give you guidance with the resources I have, like, like the book, the, the forms and templates. I have patient education material. I do consulting. So whatever I can do to help facilitate that process for you, like that's really what I want to help you with. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to thank you too, Adam, for, for highlighting this disease state and for helping educate people about this, because I just think it's, it's so important. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you so much. I feel, I feel more equipped to help people and more inspired myself just to kind of understand more about how to think about this. And, um, yeah, so thank you for, uh, joining us and I'd love to have you on sometime down the road to kind of further our discussion. That would be great. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, 
anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. Forward the, the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.